This episode of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please support us on Patreon over at patreon.com geeks or via PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com crowdfunding. And I want to give a special thank you to Tom Schuler and Daniel Estevez, who both just signed up to support us on Patreon, and to Chip Hauser, who just increased his pledge amount. So big thanks again to everyone who's contributed. We really appreciate it. All right, so now let's get to our show. Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 558 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. I'm David Barr Kirtley, author of the book Save Me, Please, and Other Stories. Publishers Weekly says, Visceral settings and robust characters will have readers marveling at how much Kirtley is able to fit into a limited page count. For SFF fans with no time to sink into a doorstopper, these concentrated doses of genre goodness will hit the spot. And Kirkus Reviews writes, Currently employs sharp, concise prose that complements his puckish sense of humor. The author's passionate voice breathes life into this wonderful array of tales. So again, the book is called Save Me, Please, and Other Stories, and it's available now on Amazon.com. And today on the show, we'll be discussing season one of the Netflix series Bodies, about four detectives in different time periods attempting to solve the same murder. And this will include spoilers for all of season one, so just be aware of that. And I'm joined by three guests. So, first up, we've got Erin Lindsay, making her 37th appearance on the show. She's the author of the Bloodbound series of epic fantasy novels and the Rose Gallagher series of paranormal historical mystery novels. Her latest Rose Gallagher book, The Silver Shooter, is out now. So, Erin, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. The next up, we've got Andrea Kale, making her 32nd appearance on the show. She's a graduate of the Odyssey Writers Workshop, and her short fiction appears in the Writers of the Future anthology, Fantasy Magazine, and Lightspeed. She's been a television writer, producer, and script supervisor for shows such as Late Night with Conan O'Brien, The Chew, and WWE's Monday Night Raw and Friday Night SmackDown, and she's currently a writer for Pixelberry Studios. So, Andrea, welcome to the show. Good to be back, Dave. And also joining us today is Rory Carroll who you may remember from our panels on the Netflix series Dark, back in episodes 294, 372, and 424. He works as a producer with Virgin Media News in Ireland. He started out as a local radio reporter in Dublin, and has spent the past 20 years as a broadcast journalist, covering everything from politics to crime. So, Rory, welcome to the show. Lovely to be here. Thank you. Okay, so let's start off with Aaron, and have you tell us about your expectations going into Bodies. Yeah, wow. Were they ever wrong? Um, I had seen it sort of kind of up on the banner, you know, when you sign into Netflix, it was pitching it pretty hard, but I didn't really pay any any attention at all. And then I was looking for a new workout show, which for me, I approached that like I approached something I'm going to watch on the plane, which is something that's going to be entertaining enough, but, you know, I don't have to pay full attention to and, and it's probably not going to be that great. And the only reason I picked it was because the thumbnail that it showed was this thumbnail of uh, this 19th century detective crouched over a body. 
Um, and my Rose Gallagher series is about 19th century detectives. And so Netflix is regularly, I watch a lot of those and Netflix is regularly pitching hmm. them. And I just glanced at the blurb and it said something about white chapels. So I went into this fully believing that this was a yet another Jack the Ripper, mm-hmm. um, white chapel murder kind of thing. I thought it might be a little bit like, um, Ripper street, that the BBC had out a, a few years ago. And I started watching it and was immediately in what the hell is going on land, mm. which I love. And yeah, then when I realized it had a speculative element, my heart just started pattering because I write speculative 19th century detective fiction. And there's not a lot of that out there that I know of. So to stumble upon that was just, oh, it was such a great find for me. Yeah, because it starts off in modern times, right? In modern day London. Mm-hmm. So you were like, where's my Jack the Ripper stuff? Yeah. I actually hit stop and went back and was like, am, am I watching the right show? And yeah, so uh, it's pretty cool. And so uh, I don't know how to, I don't know how this worked out as a workout show though. Cause this is not um, a super. Oh no, I jumped off that bandwagon straight away. In fact, after the first episode, I enjoyed it so much that I said to my husband, okay, I'll watch it again. And then we can watch the show together going forward, which is what we ended up doing. No, I abandoned the workout show plan straight away. Yeah, yeah. I guess I'll just say too that the the reason all three of you are on this panel is because all three of you independently emailed me and told me <laughs> I had to watch the <laughs> show. So, so I thought how, I was the only one. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> so that's how we ended up with this uh, this panel. So, uh, so Andrea, what were your expectations going into Well, panels? so... I've been the last couple of years, I've been really into detective shows and, and books. Um, so I've been watching pretty much anything that has a detective in it, whether it's modern day or, or uh, historical. So about June, I, I pretty much exhausted everything out there. So I was looking for new stuff t- to watch. And so I did a, you know, a search and this came up in a list. This is about June. So I came up a list of upcoming shows on Netflix. And I'm like, oh, a detective show. And then it was also, and then it was like, oh, it's also speculative fiction. I was like, oh my God, this is like hello wheelhouse. So I was anticipating this for months from June. Oh, I've wow. been waiting for it. Um, and so when it first dropped, I, it, despite the fact that I'm like drowning in work, I was like, I have to watch it. So I started watching it. And of course, the first night I'm up till about 3 a.m. because I could not stop. Um, and it did not disappoint. It was everything I hoped and thought it would be. And and yeah, like I have um I have workout shows too. And uh this is not one. You have to pay attention and it is so riveting and it is so in every 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 facet of the filmmaking is so amazing that it was just I, I couldn't stop watching it. I binged it in two days, which is considering that I'm working at the same time is just a little crazy. Yeah, I, I watched this whole thing in one day. I mean, and I, you know, it's it's sort of t- I sort of have to psych myself up to watch a, a new TV show, and so I, mm-hmm. I wasn't necessarily expecting to watch more than one episode. But I just, as soon as I started it, I just couldn't couldn't stop. I watched the whole thing yep. just straight through. Um. So actually, so Aaron and Rory uh, were on our dark, our three dark panels. Mm-hmm. So I'm just curious, Andrea, did you ever watch Dark, which bears I, some similarities I, to this show? I did. I I also um, couldn't stop watching that. Um, although I I don't remember when I got to the ending, but um, I, I couldn't take it anymore. It was like misery porn at that point. <laughs> so I still have not seen the ending. Like literally the last two episodes I have not seen. I kind of assume everybody dies. <laughs> <laughs> 
uh, well, considering everybody dies several times. Well, we won't give any spoilers for oh, Dark, yeah. but <laughs> but yeah, I mean, this is like I'm, I'd be curious to hear what other people think. But this is yeah, this is sort of like the like a little bit more cheerful, much shorter, <laughs> yeah. uh, <laughs> a little bit more historical um, version of Dark. But um, but let's get uh, Rory in here as well. So Rory, kind of, what were your expectations coming to Bodies? I didn't really know much about it, but I just started watching because on my Netflix recommendations that came up probably because of dark but for me the the lure without knowing anything was stephen graham um mm. the actor and i just love him and I'd, I'd watched uh he did a movie called boiling point which is this really stressful one-shot film where he's a head chef in a kitchen oh, so i'd gosh. watched some of that and it's it's really it's just it's a fantastic watch but it's really stressful i think he's incredible i love him so i didn't know it was period i didn't know it was even time travel until i clicked into it and then like the others here uh, hooked just hooked and because I, I love this kind of stuff and i'll put my hand up you know when it comes to time travel i'm i'm not the brightest <laughs> and uh I'm, I'm sort of well wait a minute if he did that and would that so but I, it doesn't stop me getting any pleasure out of it. it was the same with dark i had such a great time with dark and it was lovely to find something like this again um and it was nice to see as i said I, i'd watch stephen graham you know, painting his walls uh, <laughs> if he was to do it. And uh, there was a few other, some of the other casts I didn't know, mm-hmm. but it did recognize, um, and I had his name a second ago, but he was in Andor as well, another show. Yeah, um, yeah the guy who played Hillinghead. Kyle Soller. Yeah, Kyle yeah. Soller. Yeah, yeah. Playing great- almost exactly the same, almost kind of the same character. Like that yeah. lawman who's relentless. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I look, I like the look of it. I mean, I think there's parts of it that looks like it was sort of done on a budget, but then oddly there's other parts that look fantastic, you know, because it's set in four different time zones, the 1800s, World War II, present day, and then in the future. So like the others, uh, I was hooked. I binge, I didn't binge it like you, Dave, in a night. Um, I do have the luxury of, with my working hours, I can watch stuff in the mornings before I go to work. So it was kind of a morning ritual. I'd uh, bring my kids to school and then have a cup of coffee and catch an episode. So I watched it over the course of about two weeks, but loved every minute of it. It was interesting because just as I was reading up on the show, a lot of there was a lot of talk about Stephen Graham being just this legendary actor. And he's absolutely fantastic in this show. I'm a little embarrassed to admit, I don't think I've ever seen him in anything before i wonder is he if other if everyone else knows him or is he more uh, is he better known him, in the uk I, or i can't remember what i've seen him in like i haven't I seen him. boiling point but I, I knew who he was i knew him from boardwalk empire ah that's it that must be it i think he was in the irish man he got his start i think one of his first big roles was in um uh, lock, stock, and two smoking barrels. Oh, that's that must mm-hmm. be. Insane. He was um, one of the two kind of yes geezers, yeah. um, along with um, oh, what's his name? I can't remember the other actor's name. Anyway, th- that was the first time I noticed him. But I just think he's fantastic, and he's he's done a lot of um, uh, sort of uh, drama series like on UK television. Uh, he did a great one called White House Farm, I think, where he plays. Um, and another detective investigating murder but uh he's he's i i just think he's fantastic yeah i i was really really impressed with him in this when you say you thought the show was um you know it looked like it was made on a budget in some parts like what parts did you think looked a little bit uh, i thought so, some of the futuristic stuff was quite good but then i think if you were kind of to lift the, the lid a little bit it looked okay right so they're you know they're they're doing what the best that they can. Funnily enough, I thought the stuff that looked the best was the 
1890 stuff. I thought that was really impressive. Um, now, I don't know, do they get to use, because there's a lot of period productions, especially over in the UK. So I don't know, do they maybe get to reuse a set somewhere on the they, BBC They did. I, I noticed it on the second watching, which I, I binged it all yesterday again, because I had watched it in October. Um, I noticed that they used the same set for the 1890s, the uh, 1940s. And I think also for the 2023, it's the same police station. Yes, I noticed that. All right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The what, same kind of outlay. Yeah, or, yeah, yeah. 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 Um, well, and the I, Long I, Harvest Lane I, is obviously the same set. Yes. Yeah, for. yeah. Um, and I also loved that um, the color they the use of color like it was everything had like a blue cast, blue and brown and orange. Like everything was cast in blue, and it was just just stunningly beautiful. I thought. Yeah, yeah. I thought in terms of the cinemat- cinematography and mm-hmm. and everything, it looks really good. Um, but so may- maybe I should just say what the basic sort of setup is. Is so, is so yeah. So we have these four time periods that Rory mentioned, and in each one we follow a different detective who is investigating. There's a, a body shows up in in Whitechapel, which is sort of famously the neighborhood in London where Jack the Ripper operated. So so that's where we are. And this this naked man, body of a naked man, is is found in all four time periods. And it seems to be the exact same man. There's the same, you know, he looks the same and has the same weird sort of tattoo on his wrist and then all have been shot in one of the eyes. And um so obviously we know from from this that there's something supernatural or uh, science fictional involved. Um but so, so Aaron, what, why don't you tell us, uh, what did you think of the detectives? Um, uh, kind of, well, how, how, let's start with, I guess, um, I don't know if I want to overload too many detectives. Right? Well, how about, like, I'll just, let's just go for it. Let's just go for it. What did <laughs> yeah, you think of all, all, four, the detectives? all four detectives? <laughs> all four detectives. I mean, I think they all had their merits and their, their demerits uh, as, as human beings and as cops in terms of um, their various storylines, I think some of the ways in which they were unlikable were some of the most compelling things about them. Um, To me, the most sympathetic of of the four, I really, of course, I don't know if it's just because it's my 19th century bias coming out, but Hilling that that storyline was my favorite. He was my favorite detective. He seemed to be um, the sort of best mix of good intentions and competence and just really trying to do his best. Um, but, you know, I thought the, um, the, I mean, all, all four of them had compelling storylines in their own way. Um, I think Shahara is the easiest to sort of understand because she's in our timeline and DS Hassan in the modern timeline, she is kind of, I don't know. You, I think you understand her motivations and the motions that she's going through very well. And she's kind of a really solid anchor for the series. Um, but, you know, even though I guess the one I connected with least on a, on a human level was um, Iris Maplewood, the detective in the future timeline. But I think that was by design. Yeah. I think, you know, she, she plays a character who is very alienated in a world of alienated people. Um, and I, I think we're not really meant to connect with her the same way that, that the others do. It gives that sense of, a, a, mm-hmm. it heightens that sense of dystopia in terms of where she is. And so even though she's the detective that pisses you off the most, I think, mm-hmm. in terms of the yeah. choices she makes, yeah. um, you know, you, you can understand 
why they've made those choices. So I think, I mean, everybody seemed to be brilliantly cast. I think they all did a great job. Yeah. Uh, there's one other detective in the um, 40s who's the sort of, he's a Jewish detective and he's kind of crooked, um, but kind of has a heart of gold, sort of. Um, I guess I'll mention, uh, his name is Whiteman or Weissman. Uh, I guess I'll mention this is based on a graphic novel by Cy Spencer. Uh, I'm going to, and it was, uh, the show was created by Paul Tomlin and written. Uh, I'm going to assume nobody is familiar with either of those two. No. Uh, I was not. No, I didn't know anything about it. No. Yeah. So I guess I'll just tell, I'll just explain quickly. So, um, so Cy Spencer. Uh, so the the graphic novel is very short. It's like this sort of eight um, issue miniseries. I think it was eight, um, and there's no time travel to speak of, and the body turns out to be this like supernatural being who like kills himself through time for in order to impact people's lives. I think it's really really trippy. Uh, it was funny. The um, the editor on the book was this. Uh, editor Shelley Bond, and she says, Cy Spencer is not as well known as other British comic writers like Neil Gaiman or Grant Morrison, but I always believed he was the William Blake of comics. And so, just to give you an idea of kind of how trippy um, <laughs> the graphic novel is. And so, it's uh, so, so Paul Tomlin, he really, he made the story much more conventional. I mean, I think mostly almost entirely in in good ways but it's like he took this like really trippy comic and made it you know he tied the storylines together and you know made it made a lot more make a lot more sense and stuff like that Mm. um Mm. and and paul tomlin had worked with cy spencer on torchwood years ago but Mm. they sort of crossed paths but didn't really know each other that well um and unfortunately cy spencer died in the early stages of this TV show. So I think they had just greenlit the the pilot script when he died. So unfortunately he didn't, wasn't able to, um, you know, give a lot of feedback on the show, but the first episode you'll notice is, uh, mm-hmm. is dedicated to him. Oh, okay. Um, but so, so, um, Aaron mentioned there, the, that one of these timelines is in the future. So, so Andrea, why don't you tell us, what did you think about the, the future timeline? Well, I agree that she, that Iris um, is the most remote. And um, I think at one point her brother says, you're the loneliest person I I know. Mm. And I think she has, we have trouble relating to her because she has trouble relating to other people. She's, she's one of those people who is so sure and she can't help asking questions and she can't help, you know, a bloodhound, which is also how she's um, uh, described. Um, and she alienates herself from people. Um, and she was the one I couldn't, that was the one question I had was why does she go ahead and shoot? Okay. We're getting way, we're getting way, way ahead. Sorry. You just jumped ahead in time, like eight episodes right there. Um, but (laughs) But um, yeah, th- she was the one who was. <laughs> Did I mention I, there's I, a spoiler warning on this episode? Sorry. <laughs> well, there's always spoilers. People, yeah, you gotta just know making, what you're getting into. That's right. Uh, um, and we all know the ending. But yeah, so she was the one who was the most, the, the remotest for me. Um, although the actress is wonderful. I think she's been in a couple of things. I think she's like 
Israeli? No, or uh, yeah, she's Her Israeli. Name is Shira Haas. Yeah. Shira Haas. She's, she's Haas. been in a couple of shows about um, Orthodox women. Unorthodox is fantastic. Yeah. yeah. Unorthodox. unorthodox. Yeah, that's right. It's fantastic. Yeah. yeah. So that's what I, I, I haven't seen it, but I know she was in it. And um, so I thought she was, she was it's great. great. It's she's great. also, her accent is slightly different because she's not native British. So uh, again, that's that sense of otherness about her um, that fits the character. I guess, I guess maybe I should back yeah. up a little bit. So, so, so Rory, so why don't you tell us about your, just like when you started watching like the first episode or two, kind of, what did you think? How did you feel about what was going on? Were you into the show immediately? Did you, did it take yeah, you a little I was. while to warm up? I, I was, I, I was, because it was, again, it was the kind of thing once, you know, once you kind of clocked that there was something amiss with the, you know, with the, the timelines and everything, I was sort of getting into it. And I, and, and in terms of the characters, I, I liked the way they kind of jump between each one, and they would show. Mm-hmm. The, I think they would use this sort of device of a, of a, a slate would come up on the screen, and the clock yeah. would roll back from twenty twenty three to nineteen forty one or whatever, and it might show the four different detectives in the four different mm-hmm. timelines. So I liked the way they did that. Um, and uh, yeah, once I kind of was in and once I think with any show, I think they kind of teach you how to watch it. Um, mm-hmm. and That's true. Because, yeah. yeah, you have to sort of, okay, this is how I watch this show and this is what we're supposed to get. So once I was in on that, I was delighted to go along for the ride, you know, um, and I did like the four. I mean, I, I liked all four of the mm-hmm. the detectives. And, you know, I read a recap that made the point that they're all in a way, there's something, they're all kind of a little bit different to the, everyone else around mm-hmm. them. You know, you've got the Muslim woman who's the detective, which is probably, it may not be that commonplace even today. Um, you've got the closeted gay man in 1890 when it was illegal to be gay. Mm-hmm. You've got the the guy in World War II Britain who's Jewish and is facing anti-Semitism. And then you've got um, the other detective in the future who's, got this which i thought was really cool her spinal mm. obviously she she had a spinal in, in injury that's referred to we'll get into all that um but that was her difference um so yeah once as i said once i was kind of in on it and once i've i was okay this is how they want me to watch it uh i, I was all in and then that's when i really kind of just stuck with it um for the rest of the show just to pick up on something Rory just said, I think one of the things that struck me as a particularly impressive achievement um, was that that first episode might have felt, I might've felt a little bit disoriented jumping between the timelines and the split screens kind of annoyed me at first. But once as, once as Rory says, you sort of learn how to watch the show. I thought they did actually a brilliant job of what could have been a very disjointed mm-hmm. narrative if it wasn't managed well, because they do jump a lot between these yeah. different timelines. And one thing that they did that I thought was particularly clever was they don't drop the future timeline into the, the equation until the very end of the mm-hmm. first episode. When you think you've got it figured out, okay, we've got our Victorian detective, our modern, uh, our our uh, second world war detective and our modern detective. And we're jumping back and forth between these three and you're just starting to feel comfortable. And then right at the very end, it's like, welcome to the future. What? (laughs) (laughs) So I thought that was very clever the way they handled it. And it just was just the right amount of discomfort to um, orient you with what you're going to see without getting 
me anyway to jump off the bus and say, okay, it's too much. Yeah, I'll, I'll say I wasn't necessarily sold on the first episode. I felt like the um, the the current day plotline, I don't know, it just felt a little, I, I have a big thing about TV cops and, you know, there's just a lot of um, sort of cliches or whatever of the TV cop genre that sort of, you know, irritate me. And I, I felt like, so, so what happens basically is that there's this um, protest going on, this sort of right-wing protest on the streets of London. And this detective, Shahara Hassan, sees a young man holding a gun and she chases him into an alley where she finds a dead body and he sort of says that he didn't do it and escapes. And that kind of kicks everything off. But but just some of the, um, I don't know, the fact that she like has just a taser apparently and goes chasing after a guy with a gun rather than calling for backup and stuff like that just seemed, I don't know, it seems sort of TV cop-ish to me. Um, well, she does try to call for backup, but the the energy bur- you know the the energy burst cuts off communications right it just so it just seemed she- very unwise to me to well chase do you think that's gun. a sorry do you think that's an american thing because we're <laughs> we're in a in the uk and here in ireland you know we don't we have unarmed police forces so i don't know if that's a thing it wouldn't have, i wouldn't think about that now watching that you know we're used to seeing police without guns at all in this country you know? and they would go chasing after a guy with a gun into an alley like that I can't speak for what they would do, but um, you know, we, we we here in Ireland we have there are some armed police and we have armed units. But if you're walking down the street and you see a, a police officer, they're unarmed, and they would be the first to respond to anything that could happen. You know, and I also think that speaks to the character herself, who she mm-hmm. is doesn't think about. You know, she's relentless. She doesn't think about um, the danger. She just goes and does her job. Um, you know. <laughs> Also, can I say how great it is that we have, you know, serious debates about whether an individual human cop who's not going to be like, you know, every person is different, um, whether they would or wouldn't make that decision. Uh, and the, the conversation Dave and I had offline yesterday about people's ages, we're going to mm-hmm. hotly debate the plausibility oh, yeah. of that, but we're fine with the time travel. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's fine. That's yeah. fine. <laughs> Yeah, I'm just I'm just saying that was I, I it sounds like I was nobody else had a issues. Everyone was like 100% on board from the first episode yeah. it sounds like. Well, that's what I think about. That's what I feel like. That's why I could stayed up till 3 in the morning watching it cuz every episode has this amazing hook at the end that you're just like I can't, I can't stop. <laughs> I have to I have to move on to the next one. I have to find out what happens. Um and right from the start it was like, "Oh, there's that hook of the oh, now we're in the future in the same thing." So, yeah. Um and I wouldn't say that I was on board from from the minute of hitting play. Um, I, I think, as I mentioned, I had a couple of frustrations at the beginning of the episode. I didn't really like the jumping around. Um, I was keen on the, the time travel aspect in general, but I thought there was too much cutting between scenes. And I was thinking, you know, I would appreciate like an episode of uh, Whiteman and an episode of Hassan and then in not jumping back and forth that much. But But that's why I say I think they were clever about it because they did a good job of bringing us up to speed in a relatively economical way. And by saving that future timeline um, until the very end, it was the, the extra kick that I needed to proceed to the next episode. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But, but so what happens basically is that these four detectives are all pursuing these, these cases and people around them are saying cryptically, no, you are loved and so you kind of like get a sense that these cases are all connected somehow and that 
you know, these people who are saying, no, you are loved are, um, you know, connected somehow. And then for me, where I was really 100% on board with the show was in, I forget, maybe the second or third episode, where in the future timeline, um, the the detective is sort of like driving her car or something, and we see a skyscraper in the background, and the letters K-Y-A-L mm-hmm. are emblazoned on the building, and, and the letters form, no, you are loved. And so we see... Like that, that, I just got chills um, from that, and so we know somehow that this future society is all built around this this idea that that we've been hearing about from these these different characters throughout, um, you know, throughout the different timelines. So, yeah. I don't want to get my hand slapped again, but we should the eighth episode, the last, the ending of the last episode, something about that happens again. So, mm-hmm. but. I won't say it. I won't spoil anything. <laughs> no, you don't want to go in the bad books. No, yeah. D- Dave. Dave is constantly slapping my hand about. Yeah, you know, yeah. Forward. It's not just you. It's not just you. <laughs> Everyone always wants to talk about the ending right out of the yeah. gate, but I enforce discipline. Yeah, um, exactly. Um, but yeah, I mean, this is since there's the four different timelines and stuff. I think it might be. It is going to be kind of complicated to try to, you know, yeah. describe every twist and turn of the plot and everything. Um, but at a very sort of. Uh, you know, high level, basically, we find out that there's this teenage boy named Elias Mannix. And he's the center of this conspiracy to eventually detonate some sort of super bomb in London. And once this bomb goes off, it's going to kill hundreds of thousands of people and cause a collapse of civil order, which is going to pave the way for this, this cult, the know you are loved cult, to seize power and kind of remake the country in its own image. Um, is there anything else anyone wants to mention that's like a huge plot thing in the middle? It's really complicated. Um, <laughs> well, well, I don't know, I don't I mean, know how, I guess, how far we're... Sorry, go ahead. Sorry, I was just going to say, I guess a, a huge plot thing is the method by which they go about this. And I guess that's the, the one element that ties the the four storylines together is the is the one or depending on if you count the body two characters who appear in all four timelines um and the the way that they go about this is both the most interesting aspect of the show and also potentially for me anyways the the most problematic in the sense of i'm still not sure i fully understand it hmm. I'm I'm being kind of deliberately vague because I'm waiting for Dave to admonish yeah. me. No, no, no. Just just go, <laughs> just go, go ahead. Go ahead. Talk, talk about we'll okay. talk about talk about the characters who appear in multiple timelines. Well, the first and most obvious one, which I was dense enough not to realize straight away, um, I knew that the four bodies that the detectives had found had all been found in the same condition, um, i.e., naked, missing an eye, and with a strange symbol on their wrists. Um. That last one I still don't get, but anyway, um, but they are found face down. And so it wasn't until my husband pointed it out to me and like, I think episode three, I'm embarrassed to admit that I realized this isn't just the same type of murder. It's literally the same body. It's the same person. So that's the one character that appears in all the timelines. And then the other is Elias Mannix, AKA Julian Harker, who is, we first meet, I guess we first meet him as a teenager. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'm not actually sure about that. I would have to see it again, but I think we first meet him as a teenager in the modern timeline. Um, 
we are introduced to him as a few episodes in, in the Victorian timeline as a, uh, a wealthy, um, well, he becomes a banker, but he's basically sort of a, a wealthy London uh, aristocrat um, in 19th century London. And then he also eventually shows up in the future timeline as the commander in chief of the cult that's in charge. He's basically the guy who's in charge of modern, uh, well, future Britain. And his method of achieving that is to detonate this explosion at the age of 15, which shakes things up, shakes up the order in such a way that he can assume power. He does that by traveling back in time to assume the identity of someone in the 19th century. So basically that's the mechanism is the whole chicken and egg thing is where I start to get confused here. But if we start with the egg being Elias Mannix, the dictator, he goes back in time through a time travel device in the future, arrives in 1890, assumes the identity of a, of a dead aristocrat, and then uses that uh, both a combination of his knowledge of the future and just his inherent position of privilege to start this sort of nascent cult, which then gets more and more powerful over the generations. And, but he, where I get really confused is that he ends up being his own ancestor. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I don't know who wants to take over here. Well, well there's yeah. there's some stuff you're just going to have to go with uh, here, like with a lot of time travel stories. And so this is a classic. Yeah. It's called a bootstrap paradox story hmm. named for the Robert mm-hmm. Heinlein story by his bootstraps, in which, like Aaron's saying, it's sort of this chicken and egg kind of thing where, you know, the the things that happened in the past were created by people traveling back in time. And so the things in the past wouldn't have happened without the people in the future and the things in the future wouldn't have happened without the people in the past. So there's no like point you can, there's nowhere you can point to where things started. Mm-hmm. Um, mm. So they, re- they frequently called the loop breaking the loop. Yeah. Yeah. So, so you're kind of just going to have to go with, go with yeah. it. Like in any bootstrap <laughs> paradox story that, 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 that all makes sense. Sure. But there's two parts to that, Dave, if I may. One yep. is the, the the bootstrap loop, um, which I agree, you just have to, uh, as with all time travel things, you just have to kind of hand wave away. It, but the other is that even if you assume that future Mannix has to go back into the past and assume the identity of a powerful person so he can start his little project, why does he have to be his own ancestor? Doesn't that actually make it more complicated? Uh, I mean, I, I, yeah, I don't think he has, he would have to be. I think the writers just thought that was cool or I don't know. This is, this is where my head starts to hurt. Yeah, now. This exactly. Is, this is, and as you, I think you mentioned hand-waving. There's a lot of, uh, and I was watching Seinfeld and they were doing, talking about yada, yada. There's a lot of yada, yada science. Yeah. Yada, yeah, yeah, yada, sure. yada, 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 time travel, yeah. yada, yada. There's a lot of it's yada, true. yada-ing, like yada, yada, he becomes the dictator of a future. Like, you know, it's like... Yada, yada, quantum physics. Yeah. Yeah. And that was one of the things that kind of jumped out about me. Okay. So look, there's a few things. There's a few questions I have, you know, about about this. I don't okay. know how... Well, I watched where... the show twice, so I'm here to answer all your questions. Okay. So, okay, so the, uh, the whole thing is that he goes back in time to set up this cult um Stephen Graham's character goes back in time to set up this cult. He meets um what's his name? Hillingworth, Holling uh, the Hillinghead. Hillinghead. Hill- Hillinghead. Hillinghead. He yeah. meets Hillinghead's uh he meets Hillinghead, he becomes involved with his daughter, who's quite old 
looking. Uh, that was another thing. <laughs> yeah, um, extremely, yes. extremely old to yeah, still be a I would, maiden. I would, may I Hillinghead, say. I would say, is about forty, and he apparently has a daughter who's twenty-eight. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> he goes back in time. He he take he does like a summers beyond it. He takes over the identi- identity of a missing soldier. Uh, he gets in with this uh, elderly woman and takes over the estate. Now I have a few things about time travel. First of all, I can barely remember what I did last week, and to <laughs> to, to to think that you'd be able to go back in time and somehow memorize stock markets and everything from 1890 to make you into that era's I don't know Elon Musk. First of all, I don't know how anyone does that. I mean, if you sent me back to 2001 and I knew all about Facebook or Google, I probably still wouldn't know how to invest in those companies. Well, okay. Well, well, wait, how long ask, did you have to study? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, because actually in the scene where they um, go to the camper van in the campgrounds, there's a record playing and it's mm-hmm. all like stock market stuff from 1890. So presumably mm-hmm. Elias Mannix has had 30 years or so, yeah, 25 to, years to, like, to memorize, memorize all those all. records. Yeah. So I'm going to keep yada yadding here. There's the question. question. So then, okay, so he meets, uh, I think her name is Polly. Uh, He starts his family, which eventually, as you said, he becomes his own ancestor. And a few generations down is where we meet teenage Elias. Um, There's all the stuff about the bomb that is in the, he sets up a bank. There's a bomb in a vault in the bank that the detective Shahara finds. That's the bomb that is detonated, creating this obviously massive event that leads to the downfall of UK society and allows this new government headed by Elias Mannix to 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 grow and, and form with his cult and everything. Again, that's kind of waved away, you know, how a teenage boy in the aftermath of a cataclysmic event um, takes over. I guess maybe the suggestion is that this cult was in every level of society, perhaps that's yeah. what, what helped him. You know, I'm, I'm guessing like that. But the big question I, around the bomb, so there's the, there's this bomb that's in a vault in a bank that dates from 1940. Did I miss something? Was the bomb placed there back then? Yeah, it was. It, they He left it to Shahara in 1941. That's what he says when they go to the bank. He's like, that's, this vault has been in your name since 1941. So he created a nuclear bomb. Before was it a nuclear else. bomb? Did they ever say nuclear bomb? No, it, it must have been people. Yeah, it must have been something. Yeah, a mushroom cloud. It either must have been a nuclear bomb or something, even like some new technology that they invented or something. Um, I mean, this is a world with time travel, so maybe they were able to. Come yeah, up look at hey, yeah, I'm not going to cut something. them some slack, you know. Yeah. But it's yeah. not <laughs> with the t- the time travel device. It's not like he. he and it becomes relevant later on. They, he can't bring anything back. So you go in, and it's like I guess in Terminator, where you go through and you come out naked. Yeah. Um, so you can't bring anything with you. You can't bring any references. Do you with have your you dental or, fillings? That's oh, a good one. That's a good choice. Because <laughs> the bullet didn't go back. That's the reason there's no bullet because it's it wouldn't yeah, go back in time. Right. So yeah. yeah. The but dental- you do cut. You do come out with a cool new tat on your wrist. Yes. Well, I'll, no, look, I'll, I'll, I'll give it to them that somebody from the year 2053 who maybe knows about advanced bomb technology that we don't have could have gone yeah. back in time and started this cult, which eventually infiltrates all levels of society. And they could have built some super advanced bomb that couldn't normally have been built in 1941. I'll, 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 give, them all, I'll give them all that. I think it's actually probably just really a lot more simple in my head anyway. It's they've had this vault since 1941, but that doesn't mean it's been sealed since 1941. Mm. And if the cult is as pervasive as all that, that looked like a 50s, 60s era nuclear device to me. 
Not that I'm an expert, but it just it look. Oh, let me put it this way: it looked like that's what they looked like in the movies. Yeah, yeah. Um, a 50s, 60s era nuclear device, and so I don't have too much trouble imagining that the bomb was either constructed in that vault uh, during a period where, because it's Harker's own bank, it's yeah. Elias Mannix's family's bank. They could have just closed it down and moved in whatever they needed to move in and do whatever they needed to do. So I don't think we necessarily need to assume that the bomb has been there since 1941. Yeah. So is the secret to a show like this to just just go with it then? Yeah. And don't think too much. Yeah. I, I think, think so. so. Right. Yeah. And this is what I really actually loved about this show. And, you know, I have complained often my beef with um, science fiction in particular, but sometimes also fantasy is they get so obsessed with the world yeah. building and the, the sort of details of the macro plot that characters become almost an afterthought and there's no yeah. real humanity or pathos to them. And I have those stories tend not to appeal to me, no matter how it, no matter how shiny your story is and how beautiful your world is. If there are no characters to connect to and the, and the micro stories happening within that aren't compelling, mm -hmm. then I don't really care. And this is kind of the opposite of that. Mm -hmm. It's all of that stuff is just scaffolding and I really love that about it. It's it's there enough to intrigue and to direct, but ultimately this is four separate stories about four different people that are all interesting in their own right. And that's kind of what I connect to personally. Yeah. I, I as a as a writer myself, I have a especially on a first draft, I have a tendency to over explain. Like I have to explain this, I have to explain this. And then like second draft, I'm like, yeah, I don't need any of that. People people get it. People will get mm. it. And if they don't, then it's not for them. Um, so this doesn't treat us like idiots and have to over explain everything. And I appreciate that just as a viewer. Yeah, no, I, I think it works really well emotionally. I like, I, I was interested in all the characters. I, I, th I thought like dramatically it works really well throughout. I mean, I did have this like long list of logical questions I have, um, actually on a second watch, it actually sort of semi addressed a lot of them. I mean, a lot of the, you know, you're like, why didn't they do this? Why didn't do they do that? And then, you know, at some, some, at some point, a character will say like, oh, we just can't do that. We tried and it didn't work. And it's like, it doesn't really logically make sense why they could, you know, why. But, you know, since they addressed it, I'm going to give them sort of half credit for all that stuff that like they um, anticipated hmm. all the objections yeah. and had a character say, we can't do that. Yeah. That's you know, the hand waving part. Yeah. It's very hand wavy, <laughs> yeah. but, you know. I well, mean, I think there is a I scene where they basically say when they're talking about the time travel, I think they they a character says they don't really understand it themselves yeah <laughs> yeah, yeah <laughs> that yeah. always works yeah <laughs> it's every every time travel show has one of those right because i because i also think everybody like, watching is like yeah i don't understand it either yeah, yeah. <laughs> well and, the, and and it's not worth it's not worth scratching beneath that surface because yeah. it's just it's not going to be very satisfying right but i was curious what others thought um i i have a, a real fondness for the limited series in general um, that being said, I felt like this could use, this could have used one more, not because any particular one more episode, one more episode, because I just felt some stories, plot points were just a little bit rushed. I really liked the love story in the Victorian timeline, but it felt rushed. Um, it felt like we skipped some really important moments. And so understanding in particular why the photographer who becomes Hillinghead's lover, why he sticks with him in the beginning when he is such a dick <laughs> and, and he has no reason, particularly this, this photographer, it wasn't clear to me what, what stake he had, what skin he had in the game that would 
have him put up with some of the ways that he was treated at the beginning. And then he's just always willing to, to be there as Hillinghead's lover, even when, when the detective doesn't deserve it at all. So I would have liked a little bit more there. I would have liked to understand Whiteman a little bit better. He's um, as I think Rory said, or maybe Andrea, I can't remember. um, All four of our detectives are outsiders in some way. And he's got a double dose of it because not only is he Jewish during the second world war, he's also German. So he's just uh, not an appreciated person on either side of the conflict and is very much um, maligned on both counts in the UK. And so you can sort of understand, I I would just like to understand his motivations a little bit more. What made him tick? Why is he corrupt? They're like something, something yada, yada gambling debts. (laughs) Um, But I would have liked to, to know a little bit more about him because I've, you know, I found his storyline with Esther to be really compelling. Yeah. I loved that. Um, and I just, so these are just some examples where it's, it's yeah. nothing big on any particular, but it's just, a, just a little extra each time that I think would have letting it breathe a little bit more would have been nice. Yeah, I, I could go with that. I mean, what the, the structure of this is really interesting because the first six, there's eight episodes and the first six are basically sort of what you expect. It's sort of like the 12 monkeys thing where the characters try <laughs> to, you know, avert the disaster but find that they can't because it it was all predetermined and everything that they do is what happened before and and so the disaster unfolds and that's sort of like the climax and so you would it kind of feels like it might end there like dramatically and then you're like wait there's still two more episodes so what's going to happen and then there's these two additional episodes where it's like oh wait now actually we, we can go back and change the past and fix things and so that's what happens in the last two episodes but the um i I guess it's episode seven it's really interesting because it's basically the story of elias mannix's life in the in the 1890s one good episode yeah and then again like a second time once things have been changed and it's like just structurally it was really really unique and i can't think of another you know time travel story that had like that whole that they covered such again. a big span of time in one episode over two different lifetimes. It was, yeah, I thought it was really cool. I think getting back to what what was missing, it made me think as well. Apart from me, because I do love this kind of stuff, I'm a sucker for the 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 aftermath of the explosion. I would have loved it to see. Yes, I don't know, maybe some mocked up news footage of a blast site and a rising death toll counter or something like that, and maybe a little bit of, you know, this somehow how we're shown the rise of this alternative government maybe you know were, were there were there troops on the streets you know was there uh martial law I, I would have liked to have seen something like that but it worked perfectly without it you know we the blanks were filled in and we could fill them in ourselves but that's just me that's the kind of thing i like well no yeah, I, I, I agree was... i mean go ahead well, no, I, I was definitely, that was one of the big questions I had the first time I watched it was like, how does this kid who set off this bomb, and it seems like lots of people know that he did it, how does he become the beloved commander, you know, and, and I can sort of accept that the cult had such influence, they were able to, they mentioned something about like that the government lied and suppressed the truth and stuff like that. But if we just saw that happen a little bit on, you know, on stage, that might have helped, uh, helped that. But, but uh, Aaron, go ahead. Yeah, no, I just I agree. I mean, I think uh, one of the things they that they did well is they they give him adequate time. He doesn't set off this bomb when he's 25 and become the supreme leader or set off this bomb when he's 35 and become the supreme leader. He's only 15 and I think my assumption anyway is that he doesn't exceed to power for another decade plus. 
because the world has to have time to, to truly crumble after this cataclysmic event. It takes time for, for institutions to disappear. It takes time for anger to build um, at, at the, the disorder that prevails and, and so on and so forth. But I agree we would have uh, just a few glimpses. It could have even been something like, for example, there's a, a period of time where Maplewood's walking around university looking for the mm-hmm. professor this is a great moment to have some history class that she walks into and they're, you know, watching a film or a clip that gives you just a little bit even of a flavor of, of what that mechanism looked like. Um, I, and I agree, Rory, you don't need it, but I do think it would have, it, it would have been nice to see. Cause there is a reference to it. I think her, her, her next door neighbor, uh, Maplewood's neighbor comes yeah. up and they have a glass of wine and they're watching some sort of, it's yes. whatever it is, 30 years since the event or whatever memorial program. Mm. Mm-hmm. The, the one thing I have a, it's not an issue. It just came a, a question that popped up in my mind as I'm watching is, is that is 30 years isn't quite enough to rebuild to that extent. Um, from from an explosion that large that killed five hundred thousand people, it just doesn't mm. seem quite logical to me. Um, especially advances in technology that they made. Um, just you know, like being in New York during nine eleven, uh, and that wasn't even as bad as this supposed explosion. Um, it took at least I don't know ten fifteen years before they rebuilt. Um, but if you, I don't, if you think of like. Berlin in World War II or I was going to say in Japan. I feel like by yeah. the 70s, you know, like the 70s, like all that stuff, you wouldn't it's, even know. Like It just doesn't seem Personally, to me, it didn't seem right. Like whole the whole sections of London, London was basically destroyed, like not ju- just to the bedrock, I would assume. Like just rebuilding all of that in 30 years. Um, and the only thing they show is like one spot that's with a fence with you know, memorials and it just didn't, I don't know. It struck me as a little, not quite enough time. That, yeah. That one, that one I didn't have trouble with. They rebuilt a lot of London after the blitz. <laughs> they, a lot, a lot of Europe was leveled. Um, and you know, Polish cities totally leveled French mm-hmm. cities, totally leveled. Um, I, I think that, to, that to me, I mean, I, I hear what you're saying, but you know, the, the the rebuilding in uh, in New York City is a very New York City phenomenon for reasons <laughs> we can discuss offline. Those, I will those give dudes you can't build a yeah. subway <laughs> in less than twenty years. Say, That's yeah. a whole other conversation. <laughs> um, Point taken. <laughs> but, but let me. I'll, I'll say the, the 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 biggest thing after all all. After I went through it twice and everything and wrote up all my notes, the the one thing that I I still can't understand at all is why after Elias Mannix goes back in time through the throat, why he doesn't leave guards behind to stop anyone else from going through the throat to undo what his whole plan. I just can't make any sense out of why the throat is just accessible to um, to Shahara and... um, Gabriel. Professor, yeah. Totally. Uh, and to connect to Andrea's now timely question, why did she shoot? Yes. I still can't figure it out. I watched it twice now and I still like I She's a very her. lost puppy. And then also <laughs> she shoots him and then immediately regrets it. Regrets it and works with the chapel perilous people. And that's why actually I didn't have as much trouble with that is, I mean, it's, she makes a lot of decisions that 
that you're mad at her about. Yeah. And, but there's a certain consistency to it where she's, she is so conflicted and she is so brainwashed that I don't have so much trouble believing that just in a moment of extreme stress, it's just an automatic reaction. And like the second she pulls the trigger, she regrets it. I did think it was but she cool. is unfathomable in some ways. Anyway, I, I did think it was cool. It was a cool explanation for how you ended up with these bodies strewn across time that he was that this guy was shot standing at sort of the threshold of this time portal. Um, I thought that was a clever, a clever explanation for that. Did we um, get any attempt at an explanation of the wrist tat? It, no, it just you happens when noticed, you go through. When you go through, I noticed the that when they when they look at the particle thing, that symbol is the center of the particle. That weird hmm. tattoo thing. Yeah, hmm. I don't. I don't think I that there's an explanation beyond just the fact that yeah, there's like the there's the the light in the portal somehow brands you as you pass through. I don't know. I don't think there's much beyond that. But I want to get Rory back in here too. So Rory, do you have any other uh, any other questions or any other like favorite moments from the show or characters or anything like that? No. I, I, well, I, I was I, I I was surprisingly I did like the the 1940s, the World War II um, period. And it's weird because it's not really a part of history I'm particularly interested in myself, but I did enjoy it. And there was I kind of liked the guy, the actor, um, whose yeah. name I had it there a second ago. I mean, there were jokes made about him being sort of like a matinee kind of star look. He was a good-looking <laughs> guy, and I think they played into that. Um, so I enjoyed that, and I I did enjoy the the little aside with the um, with the girl that he kind of befriended who came in, there was a great scene where she came into the police station and she blackmailed him because there's another kind of story about this, about how he framed someone else for a murder to kind of mm-hmm. cover up. That's a whole other thing, really. It's all, it all relates in, but there was a great <laughs> scene where she comes in and, and then she's, she's speaking, um, she's speaking Yiddish to him. Um, and, she's saying one thing and he's telling his his colleagues completely different trying to blackmail him and i like their relationship he his his overall arc was the one i liked the most i think mm. because you know he was he kind of redeemed himself at the end um yeah and when, it, when he had a lot of charisma and so we one of the things we talked about with dark was how there wasn't really any there weren't really any jokes at all in the entire three no. seasons. No, no, and, <laughs> and there was a lot of funny moments, particularly with with the white man character. I just wrote down two I wanted to mention. So there's a part where the 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 girl he's sheltering Esther is in his uh, apartment and he's made borscht for her, and he says, "You know how is it?" And she says, "Tastes like rat's piss." And he says, "That's my secret ingredient. You've got a great palate." <laughs> and there's well, a part the, where both of them, the patter between them is great. Yeah, and also there's a part where he's talking to the secretary in the police station, and he says, no, 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 come on, we've got a deal. You keep an eye out for me, and I keep an eye out for me. So, <laughs> yeah, so so there was some, you know, some levity in there um, as, as compared to I would dark. be curious whether anybody out there in the internet universe has run uh, some data on who got the most screen time and how that split mm-hmm. out. I would be curious simply, f- like, how much it matches my own anecdotal impression of it, because I felt like Whiteman got the least, but it, is it because he objectively did get the least or because I just wanted to see more of him? I don't know. It felt to me like Shahara was the main character. I think it's probably because we start with her. Um, but uh, I felt like we saw a lot more of her than 
or maybe I, I enjoyed all her stuff with the reveals where she goes into the old oh I um, love that ar- yeah. archives part of the police station and she finds you know the, the the pictures of of you know she finds the evidence that doesn't make any sense you know how you know this guy is, was alive a hundred years ago or whatever I really enjoyed all that kind of stuff you know yeah yeah I mean I'd have to go count but I feel like there was a part where I felt like Whiteman kind of dropped out of the story toward the end yeah. because Shahara and um, Iris are sort of involved in the same plot. And then their, their plot gets involved with um, Hillinghead. And that's all going on for a while. And Whiteman's kind of not involved in that. And then his connects at the end. But I, I did feel like he was sort of missed. There was a, there was a big chunk of the story where he was sort of um, in the back, in the back seat. Yeah. Um, let's see. Anyone else have any, uh, any favorite moments or characters or anything they want to talk about? I just want to say that the two actors that I thought were outstanding to me were the teenager playing Elias Mannix, the Mm -hmm. teenage Elias Mannix. I thought he was fantastic. Um, just everything like the, the, the pain turning into anger and his eyes were so expressive. Um, I thought he was great. And also the woman who played his adoptive mother, who I'm watching it, I'm like, she looks really familiar. And I looked it up. She was the the nice little Regency housewife from Sanditon, where she's just sweet and everybody loves her. And then she's just a fucking lunatic in this. <laughs> the scene where she's, you know, being questioned and she just loses her shit and does that whole, ooh, I said too much, and then bites her tongue off. She was so good. That was such an compelling scene um Mm. those are the two people that like knocked my socks off there's a lot of good act i just wanted to issue a correction too i think i'm wrong about stephen graham i I said boardwalk empire but i meant peaky blinders Mm. anyway um there was a lot of great acting in this but um i guess two things that i didn't love and they're just they're nitpicks both of them one is I thought that I know that the, well, I was going to say, I know that this is from the comic, but I actually don't know that. So the, the twist. It's probably not. There's almost nothing from the comic. <laughs> Pro- yeah. Probably not. <laughs> the twist that Barber ends up being in on the plot the whole time mm-hmm. was both very predictable and just, it was unnecessary, I thought. And it, that punch didn't really land because we'd already seen that move several times by this point. Um, the, the police captain is always involved. In every, in every timeline. And so maybe that they did it for, for symmetry or whatever, but I, I just, I, I didn't love that. And I didn't think it was necessary. It just felt a little bit pat. And I kind of rolled my eyes about that. No, So so in the graphic novel, not only is he not in on the plot, there is no plot. That's how different different they are. (laughs) Okay. Um, I couldn't get past the first few pages of the graphic novel. I have to be honest, but Mm. I tried. Um, but the other thing that I didn't love, and this is something that uh, actually I thought about dark as well, the fundamental motivation that drives the whole thing was thin for me. And the fundamental motivation that drives the whole thing is that Elias Mannix didn't feel loved. And I just, I don't know. I, I just didn't think it was enough. I didn't think it was enough to justify the, the the decisions that he made, I didn't think it was, it, it was particularly hard to understand. Like if I could sort of 
cast myself back to the emotional mess I was at 15, <laughs> um, even with a, a perfectly normal, balanced family life, um, I can sort of kind of hand wave away the, okay, I'm going to kill half a million people because I'm sad and angry. It's sticking with that choice and, and, and seeing that choice as in any way reasonable or justified or, or anything but batshit crazy 10 years later. 20 years later, 30 years later, that I have a really difficult time with. And I just, I just wish there'd been a little more there, there. Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, I thought it made a little bit more sense on my second watch where there was the implication that this cult had sort of engineered for him to have mm -hmm. this miserable foster care experience in order to make him so unhappy. But you really sort of had to like look for it. It, it didn't come through to me really at all on my first um, I, viewing. The, the only Thing I have thing about that I had a problem with is that I just don't think that fifteen year olds verbalize it as much as he did. Like <laughs> he was very obvious about it. Like it was very on the nose. Like nobody from fifteen year olds, you know, it took took me about forty years to really verbalize my <laughs> anger at my childhood. <laughs> um, to you know, to really recognize it for it was at the time. I was like, yeah, this is normal. Like fifteen year olds just accept bad treatment from adults as normal or at least you know the ones who are raised to do it um so i just don't think he would really verbalize it and recognize it for what it was at the time i don't know well I, I speak as the father of a, a boy who's almost 15 and i'm lucky if i can get a grunt out of him at the end of the day. <laughs> so um, exactly he was a very articulate young man on screen there <laughs> Um, no, I'm definitely on I, first viewing. I think, aside from maybe some of the time travel stuff, my biggest um, issue was that Shahara would take this kid who was somehow involved in this plot to blow up London and just sort of take him on a field trip to see his mom. Yeah. Not in a. Yes. Yeah. 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 Not yes. handcuffed, not in the back yes. of a car that he can't get out of, but just like that. that like, no way in a million years would this ever happen. Yeah. Um, and and doesn't also, she already know that that's the motivation? Am I remembering that wrong? Doesn't she already know vaguely that it's something to do with that him, you know, being, being rejected alienated? Yeah, that that oh. sets him off in the first place. I don't remember that. that <laughs> yeah. Um. But but I I just thought there should like if if it was going to be being rejected by his birth mom was going to be the um, spark that sets him off to to detonate the bomb. There need that needed to be handled way differently. Um, yeah. And. I was thinking I mean, it might have been maybe should have been a thing where like, you know, when he makes the de initial decision not to use the detonator, somehow she she um, Hassan tells him that his birth mom, you know, expressed an interest in meeting him or something like that. And that's what sort of like, you know, makes uh, tips the balance for him. And then yeah. when it's then it's like it's not because because it's just always he's never had a relationship with his birth birth mom. So it's not easy for me to understand why that makes such a big difference. Whereas if he had like built up some sort of false hope and then had that pulled out from had the rug pulled out mm -hmm. from under him maybe it makes a little bit more sense to me but i definitely thought that was one of the least well-handled parts of the of the plot yeah and i think it's linked i i just i would have liked to see some sort of ideology attached to um to this remaking of the world i i don't you know remaking the world so it's nice to me doesn't quite yeah. get there for me yeah yeah and you don't really see any downsides to dictatorship everything looks pretty cool actually 
I wouldn't mind living in that yeah. future. Well, <laughs> no, stop suggested like, with her brother. It's like gently repressive. Oh, yeah. Maplewood <laughs> yeah, has, has a brother that she goes yeah. to, and he's kind of living off-grid yeah. to, to a certain extent. He, he's Is he in a wheelchair? He's yeah. in a wheelchair. Yeah, he yeah, says so they both have some. Yeah, that's right. I couldn't remember. Uh, so obviously, in the 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 in the in the explosion, she was injured, and obviously suffered I, a spinal injury. Or no, I, wait, I no. think they both she have some that, condition. Yeah, she, she says, says they have the same ah, condition, sorry, like I genetic stand. condition. Yeah. That's right. So obviously, they have a genetic condition. If they're without, she has this spinal device that she has to charge up that allows her to walk. Her brother is obviously taking the decision to maybe go on the fringes of society. He's living in a, a more kind of a rundown kind of a place. She goes to him for help with the case. Um, he's kind of a sort of a hacker type, but obviously there's that, there's that thing there where she's decided to go all in on, you know, KYAL, know you're loved and the commander and her brother's on the outside. So we did see a little bit of that, you know, that not everyone is on board with this. <laughs> Singapore level repression. Um, yeah, <laughs> everything works really well. You're just not allowed to say what you think. I'm sorry. Yeah. No offense. No offense to anyone from Singapore. Yeah, they can build just, a subway line in a day rather than 20 years. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. All right, all right. There's, there's a case to be made. Um, but maybe, <laughs> but maybe one other thing. That's another example, and it kind of ties into the ending here. Another example where I, I think we could have seen more. I felt a little disappointed that there's this intriguing moment, which no one seems to have considered that when then when Maplewood decides she's going to go back in time to 1890 um, to start sort of putting some sand in the gears, she's got this spinal implant and she goes through and she does not seem to have considered. And in fact, I hadn't considered either that when she goes through that portal, the spinal device is gone. Yeah. So she finds herself um, paralyzed face down in the dirt in 1890. What a terrifying position to be in. She's a naked woman who can't move, who can't walk. She can just drag herself um, in, in Whitechapel in 1890. And then, so all we see is her kind of dragging herself out of sight. And then the next thing we know, she's in prison we don't know how she got there or what she experienced between those moments. And then we, we don't see her again until we do. And, and I think that would be another area where I would have liked just a little bit more because to me, you've just set yourself up for this huge piece of conflict that would be fascinating to see. This is, this is a tense moment. She's, she's helpless in 1890 and they just yada, yada, yada that away too. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Yeah, no, I'll, 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 I'll say, yeah, they, they definitely, I think, could have used at least one more episode to flesh out some stuff. Uh, the other thing I, I just realized, the other thing that I wanted to mention that I really was a huge problem for me was that there's this part where Hillinghead, for no earthly reason that I can divine, decides to carve his name in the brick wall. Yeah. And then Shahara in the future goes and, like, looks at it. And I just, just like, seems so... <laughs> unmotivated to me yeah it's like what the heck like how did this happen like that just drove me crazy but but then there was a scene where they realized that maplewood did the same thing didn't she she carved her name on the wall am i remembering that right yeah by that point it was trendy yeah well at a certain point i can buy it because they're seeing that other people have done it and they know about time travel but like at at the initial point why the heck does he do it like hilling head in the past who has no idea about time travel or anything else Mm -hmm. it just seemed very very contrived Mm. Yeah. yeah. But is this a good time then to talk about when we do see Iris again? 
Yeah, yes. let's let's just <laughs> yeah we can do. Let's get into anything because we're into the closing um, stages. Yeah. So the- as I mentioned, like that in the last episode, I think it's the last. I can't remember exactly. I think it's the end of the second last episode. You have Iris. Um, arriving in 1890, sans spinal implant, which is this horrifying moment. And they're like, and scene. And you don't know what happens. And then in the next episode, she's in jail and she's trying to convince Hillinghead that she's from the future, et cetera, et cetera. And then we don't see her again. Mm-hmm. She's never referred to again. We don't know what became of this woman in prison or why she's in prison or anything until the very final scene where disaster has been averted. And this is another thing they did that I thought was interesting. Apparently the people in the future, their memories shift Mm -hmm. only they know their memories are shifting, which is fascinating. Um, Anyway, the the explosion doesn't happen in 2023 crisis is averted and Hassan gets into a taxi for an Uber. I don't know. And it turns out her driver is Maplewood. And and she makes some remark, maybe you guys who've seen it twice can refresh my yeah. memory, but it's something along the lines of this world is so crazy. <laughs> and and it's like something like, over. Yeah. yeah. And she's like, you have no idea. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and then that's where we, where we, and then cut she it. says Shahara. So we know it's, she knows right. who, yeah, she is. And we see the KYAL on the, exactly. on the building. Yeah. yeah I was going to say that I didn't, I missed that, the KYAL. Oh, I didn't notice that. Yeah, in the first run-through. I only caught it last night when I watched the last episode. My very strong sense of this, especially from um, reading interviews with, um, what's his name, Paul, the guy who created the show, Yeah, um, was that this was basically, he just basically threw this in at the end in case there's a season two, that -hmm. this would sort of- I think we read the same stuff, yeah. Yeah. I thought he was trolling us. (laughs) (laughs) Just kind of like, like ah, no season two for you. I think you'll be gnawing on this river. That butterfly effect thing that even if you change one small thing, everything else changes. So, you know, we come back and it's normal, but it's not quite normal either. It's not the same as it was. It's not the same 2023 it was in the first episode. Things still have changed. Well, and it's a pity that they're so committed to not doing future shows because, of course, it is ripe that way as, you yeah. know, all of us who watched the Arab Spring unfold or for, for that matter, a million other examples before it of uh, the, the evil, you know, taking that out and the chaos that ensues. Sometimes what comes after is is worse. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, but so, so Rory, you read some you read articles or interviews and stuff about the show? Well, I was re- I think I was reading the same kind of thing as, as you and, and, and the creator that you mentioned there that he said, look at. I don't. I think if I read the same kind of articles, they they hadn't really planned it, but then he kind of threw it in. Um, and like you know, there's my question is where has she been for the last you know 150 years or whatever it's been. Um, but I was curious about uh, season two. Uh, you know, if that if that is there as a season two, and um, I have this sort of fixation sometimes with looking up at figures of things, and I did happen to look up at the. Uh, Netflix top 10 to see how this thing rated. And it was in the top 10 worldwide for four weeks, mm. you know? So Netflix there, you know, they were famous for paying yes. for anything and, 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 you know, letting, letting people run wild. And then they got a bit ruthless and cut stuff back when, yeah. you know, they couldn't borrow as much money at, at cheap rates as they used to. But I'd like to think that, you know, with the success of this, I mean, it was, it was number one, between the week of October 23rd and 29th, 58 million hours viewed. You know, I'd, I'd like to think that that's a good sign that I'd be all in for another season. 
I hope so. I hope you're right, but mm. I don't trust Netflix with anything. <laughs> every almost every show I was like, this is great, canceled. Eighteen eighty nine, a whole bunch of stuff. Yeah. I mean, I would definitely be interested in seeing what else Paul Tomlin could do. I mean, I don't know I don't know how much further, you know, this story could particular story could go without just kind of repeating itself. Um, mm. So I would want to see maybe, a, a, you know, if there were to be a season two, maybe like different time periods and different characters and, you know, some other kind of story or something. Because um, I feel like these characters all kind of had their, their uh, arcs and, mm. and everything. Um, and I, I don't, I don't dislike the idea of just throwing in a ha ha <laughs> sort of little <laughs> morsel at the end, just to let the viewer's imagination run wild about, about it, but actually just having that as, as the end, the interviews that I've read or the articles that I've read sounded quite definitive in terms of the no, no season two mm-hmm. scenario. Well, it was only like approved for season for once it was, it was approved as a or like greenlit as a one season thing. And so it would be right. like unexpected if it were to get a season two, yeah. you know? Hmm. Um, and I'm, I'm a fan of the, this, I'm a fan of the limited series. You yeah. know, I, look, I, I, I'm all for, you know, going on a, a deep dive over five or six seasons or whatever it is, 60 shows or something like that. But this was nice just to know, okay, there's eight and that's it. When we're done, it's sometimes I find myself getting caught up in, a series and you watch it and you watch it and watch it and then every once in a while it's great to go back to something limited even just watch a two-hour movie where you've got everything wrapped up in two hours and it was similar with this it was Mm -hmm. start to finish eight episodes eight or nine hours of my life whatever it was (laughs) and and i was happy with that you know yeah yeah and i think it's it's nice to be left wanting more rather than feeling like they're wringing every dry drop out of it yes exactly yeah and and i think this did quite well but it was sort of striking to me that there wasn't a lot of like YouTube, there weren't a lot of YouTube videos or podcasts about it. I mean, there were some, but I was running into a problem I've never run into before prepping for this episode where there were like all these like, obviously AI generated YouTube videos, you know, which were total (laughs) garbage. And so I would start, you know, I I made a whole playlist of everything I could find and I'm just trying to listen to and I kept having to skip because it's like, no, this is obviously just AI with like AI voice and stuff. And it's like stupid. It makes no sense. Actually, one of the things, you know, so I sent you guys one of the big things I spent a long time, like way too long researching, I told you, was (laughs) trying to figure out uh, Elias Mannix's actual family tree. And it's like really confusing in the show whether um, the Hayden... Uh, Hayden Harker character is Danny's grandfather or great grandfather. We an email chain offline where you, yeah. you, you, you at one stage thought they skipped a generation. Yeah. Because well, d- the, the guy, the Hayden in, in 1940s London, you think he is Barber, the, the police captain in 2023. You think it's his, that's his father. No, it's now. either, no. I think, wait, where's my notes? I think it's oh, either his <laughs> grandfather or great-grandfather. He's, so I, I I got those, I watched yesterday after you sent all those emails, so I was sort of looking yeah. out for it. Episode six, um, Shahara says, uh, Julian Harker is, oh, shit, was Elias's <laughs> great-grandfather. She says it outright. Yeah, well, okay, God, so that's right. Oh, well, and Sarah so says the same thing, but then Julian oh, Harker no. himself t- twice says that there's like should be two Several generations, generations. Sorry, between I, Hayden I, I, I and took, Danny. 
I took the note that what she says is Danny Barber is Julian's great grandson. That's what she says. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, his, and so, so, nope, so, no, it should so be his Elias great, great grandson. She, no, she literally, I wrote it down. I wrote no, no, it down. I, damn it. No, I, I understand. No, I'm telling, I'm telling you. So according to that, and according to Sarah, He's the great grandson. Danny is the great grandson of Julian Harker, but according Correct. to but according to Elias himself, he's the great great grandson of himself of himself. Uh, or right, Dino, so sorry. which would make Elias the great great grandson of Julian? No, no, sorry, I misspoke. Danny is the great great grandson <laughs> of. Is Julian is Harker. everyone following along? No, no you lost me. You lost. <laughs> so you sorry, lost it doesn't <laughs> it doesn't matter. And, but, but it I was just, it I just yada, 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 yada. I just bring it up to but note we, that uh, every article I consulted online said a different thing about this. And uh, half of them called the Danny character Jack. And I have no idea where that <laughs> oh, came from. Oh, that's weird. Yeah. But yeah. I think it must be an AI, like some AI article. Yeah. Got Hallucinated that and then they and all And then a bunch of other things it. replicate. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it's funny because we, I mean, and that long email chain, Dave and I then went into bilaterals about it because <laughs> I was at the airport and I had nothing else to do, but, you know, wax eloquent about under five mortality rates, <laughs> like blah, 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 blah. Um, but, you know, I think it is also a good example of how the writers themselves did not get too far into the weeds because I maintain that just on a plausibility level, we got to have at least three greats in there. Um, but I don't think they fundamentally cared. Yeah. They're just like, it doesn't matter. <laughs> so they didn't, well, they didn't do the sort of nerdy stuff. And by the way, one of the reasons I was nerding out about it as much as I was, is I literally just went through this with one of my books, trying to decide how many greats I needed for this World War I ancestor to be the, yeah, how many, how many great, great grandfathers this guy would be for my 29 year old character. And I sat down and did the math. And I don't think anybody there sat down and did the math. Yeah. But yeah, I think the, the the thinking there is at this point you're so deep into this story, you're episode six, like you don't give a damn. <laughs> like yeah, well, nobody's I, really going to think about this as deeply as we're doing right now. Yeah, I think it's entirely po- entirely possible that a they didn't really figure it out that carefully. B I'm confused somehow. Or C is is also possible that the line "Danny's the great grandson of some posh dead banker" just sounds a lot better than "Danny's the great great grandson of some posh dead banker," <laughs> and the line uh, "The child you carry begets a son, then generations are born, then I am born" sounds a lot better than "The child you carry begets a son, then there's one more generation, then I am born." <laughs> so it might have just been like for for the sake of the lines sounding better and. So what if it disagrees with each other? You know, they disagree with each other. Well, and also, I don't think we can assume, like, the, the way the relationship is described between Sarah and, and Barber, it's uh, it's pretty brief. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I, I think we don't need to take her her 20-year-old memory, 15-year-old memory of, of this brief sexual relationship she has with Barber as being she's an encyclopedia of knowledge about his uh, genealogical backstory. Yeah. You know, she's she's got a vague sense that some great something or great, great something was somebody important. But, you know, I don't I didn't personally think we needed to take her all that literally. Yeah. But then Andrea said, what was it, Harker? Who who said the same thing that you said? You, what you just In episode somebody. six, Shahara says, Danny Barber is Julian's great grandson. Okay, but she just heard that from Sarah, so so 
That doesn't matter. Or I mean, that's that's not but independent. She, but she says it when she's presenting the evidence, like to, I don't know who, uh, I think maybe the the uh, terrorist organ, the terrorist uh, cops, whatever they're called. <laughs> oh, yeah, right. Uh, all right. Well, this is why I love this kind of thing. I mean, we've <laughs> there's, been, there's been an entire email thread about this, and now several minutes on this. This is fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> so, so yeah, I think yeah, like I think we've spent enough time on that particular topic. Um, Rory, any, anything you don't else? want to talk about infant mortality a little longer? <laughs> Rory, anything else that you want to uh, bring up before we run out of time here? No, I mean, it's just, as I said, I sometimes my head is confused by time travel. I think Dark is the the mother of all of them. Um, and we did three podcasts on that show. And I still well, sometimes... Well, yeah. How, how, do you, how would you rank this compared to Dark? Oh, I mean, in terms of its complexity? It's, no, in terms of your enjoyment of it. Oh, in terms of my enjoyment, I, I, th- I thought Dark was way above this, to be honest mm-hmm. with you. Um, I mm-hmm. thought it... Overall, it looked better. I just everything about it. The, uh, yeah, I, I just I enjoyed Dark a lot more than I than I enjoyed this. Now that's not to say, you know, I'm not in a way it's, you're not comparing like with like. I just thought it was yeah, it was a lot more going on in Dark. You know, we had I don't know. Well, how Well, there's many also times. three seasons of it. So yeah, there was three seasons. We had how many different time zones? Yeah. We had multiple Oof. characters. There was a lot to go on, and, and that was part of the fun trying to. to to keep track of it all with dark as well um this this is it was highly enjoyable for me but i, I at the same time i think i'd be more inclined to go back and rewatch this than dark it's easier uh, to watch yeah it is much an easier, easier watch dark you, you and after sitting through se- three seasons of dark it, was, I, it got darker like, and darker <laughs> yeah i'd be like oh wow i don't know can i i don't know can i put myself through that again yeah. but I, i'd happily watch this again yeah aaron were you going to say something about this first dark uh i mean i i wasn't i think there were certain things that i that i think reminded me of dark and i think i mentioned that to you in my original email to you that there's some things that reminded me but to me as rory says i mean i it's not comparing like with like um i like i I love them both for very different reasons um and dark is leaning more towards that it's it's just it's a complicated puzzle um, a really complicated puzzle, and sometimes I'm not in the mood for complicated puzzle. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't call this um, a, sort of a Stranger Things bouncy ride bodies, mm-hmm. but it's it's certainly a lot more streamlined, and it just I find it enjoyable for very different reasons. So I just I wouldn't sort of be able to compare them cleanly in that way. Yeah, I, when I was watching Dark, I literally had to have the timeline. You know, all the who who is who in what timeline up every time because I just kept forgetting who everybody was and it, it was so complicated um trying to follow along. I mean, you yeah. know, it was compelling three, and I three did. dimensional chess versus yeah, chess. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, that. Yeah. <laughs> well I, I would have like after I finished this, I would have said that I liked dark a lot more, but I went back and listened to all our dark panels and it was just really striking how much of the conversation was like, did this happen? I'm not sure. You know, is this what was going <laughs> on? I'm not sure. And so there's something sort of frustrating going back and listening to like just how much of it was just confusion, you know, how much of the experience of watching that show was just confusion. And um, I think another thing that this has over Dark is like the the different time periods in Dark was mostly the 50s, 80s, and 
current and present day, which are not like super, super different from each other as, a, as yeah. opposed to the present day Victorian times in the 40s. So I think that gives this a little bit more variety. So you have like the weird time travel puzzles and stuff, but then you have a little bit more variety to the settings mm. as well. I also think Dark is just, uh, it was going, it had a different mission statement. Um, the, the pleasure of Dark was the puzzle. It was, I mean, that was the frustration of it, but it was also the, it was the challenging of your brain to try to figure out what was going on and try to keep up, let alone get ahead and, and to solve the mystery and figure out what was going on. That frustration was, it was a feature, not a bug. Mm. Um, and I don't think that this show had anything like those same aims. This was much more about entertaining and, um, and telling a twisty, exciting story. Whereas I don't think that was ever something dark was going for. Mm-hmm. I feel like you but, could maybe just watch this before you watch Dark and, you know, this would be kind yeah. of like a good warm up uh, for well, watching Dark. If we're speaking of Dark, did anybody else see 1889, which was made by the same people? Yeah, I love that. Yes. Oh, my God. It was so good. So good. I'm so angry that they canceled it. Yeah. I, 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 I haven't <laughs> seen it, but I've heard, I've heard a lot of good things about it. It's, so we might, we it's might do so, it. It's so, so good. So compelling. A lot uh, of the same actors, or at least the, the main character from Dark, or sorry, mm. not the teenage main character, but the adult main character. You old Jonas. Yeah. Yeah, old Jonas. Well, right. not, not old Jonas. No, medium, middle-aged medium Jonas. Jonas. God, middle-aged <laughs> Jonas. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so you guys want to hear about some of the historical inaccuracies in this show? Sure, I love historical inaccuracies. <laughs> oh, I am so in for this. Please. Okay. The street lamps in the 1800 scene seem to be electric when they explode, but in those years, almost all street lamps were gas-driven. Uh, the boy selling newspapers in the scene from the 1800s yells, Halfpenny. It's usually pronounced Haypenny, Ha-penny or Haypenny? Haypenny, yeah. Haypenny. Mm-hmm. No, I'm reading, I'm reading that's what it says. It says Ha-penny yeah. or Haypenny. Um, it is stated that a gentleman's cane in the right hand might imply a limp on the left leg. A cane in those days was a fashion accessory, which mm-hmm. every gentleman would have. It would not imply a limp, but only that the yes. gentleman was right-handed. I did mm-hmm. think about that when they were talking about it. Yeah. I feel uh, smart now. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it is stated that the cane's imprint in the dirt is hexagonal. Antique canes end in a metal or, in the case of expensive ones, bone ferrule. I don't know if they, how to pronounce that. To protect the wood against wear and tear, they make a round, not hexagonal imprint. There were no antique hexagonal for rules. I uh, bet you didn't know that. Uh, or maybe Aaron does. I don't know. Let's see. <laughs> uh, during one of the segments set in 1941, a police car is seen and heard using a siren. British police cars didn't use sirens until the early 1960s. In 1941, they were equipped with bells. Uh, and in a scene set during World War II, Whiteman tells the woman on the phone that he will cold case the matter. According to the mm. Oxford English Dictionary, the earliest recorded use of the term cold case in the context of police investigations was in 1985. So, okay, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't advise historical fiction writers to rely solely on OED in this matter. I've yeah. caught them a number of times being wrong about that sort really? of thing. Hmm. Yes. I recommend Etim online because they triangulate sources. What's it called? Etim? Etim as in etymology. I ah. think it's all one word. Etim online. And then so they like have E-T-Y, yeah, triangulation. Yeah. Of, oh, well, yeah. Yeah. I think I, I used to go sources. to entomology, etymology.com. <laughs> entomology. It's so hard. It's so easy to make that mistake. Um, etymology.com to look stuff up because it was. I just love etymology. Love it. Mm. Um, 
but yeah, so this is a, a great source. And then uh, newspapers.com, just pick a time bracket and Google it and, and put it in the search bar. Actually, you know what? And I'm going to ask you about you'll, this offline. You'll find, it, because... you'll find it a lot earlier than anybody claims. Huh. So just there, a little fun fact from historical it? fiction nerds. Yeah. Is there anything else you want to say, Aaron, about just like the historical fiction aspect of this? Did everything seem pretty uh, on point to you or was did anything really strike a wrong note for you? No, I didn't. I can't say. I mean, I might on a rewatch. I can't say I, I picked anything up um, in particular. No, I, the, the hexagonal one is interesting. I think it's funny that they assume that a rich dude couldn't have whatever he wanted on the bottom of his cane. But anyway. <laughs> yeah. And that's just according to IMDb. That stuff might be totally wrong for all I know. So you should definitely check check that before you uh, put it in your hmm. master's thesis or anything like that. Um, I also, I also just want to mention, I think it's, you know, that the Julian Harker character, it seems to me is very obviously named after Jonathan Harker, who's one of the yeah. heroes in yeah. Dracula, the Bram Stoker. I wondered Dracula. about that. Yeah. And then there's a reference to the Deutsch particle, which I think is very obviously a reference to the Oxford physicist, David Deutsch, who oh. was also uh, name checked in Avengers Endgame. Tony Stark references the Deutsch proposition while really? discussing time travel with Scott Lang and the other Avengers. So, so interesting. Hmm. Um, all right, cool. So we're uh, uh, pretty much out of time. Does anyone have any other uh, any big topics just, that they wanted to just, discuss? I just have a question about like British movies, stories about post-apocalyptic Britain, because this is this reminded me not so much reminded me, but it's similar to like Children of Men, uh, V for Vendetta. Hmm. Um, this show from the 90s called Cold Lazarus, all of them take place in Britain in some post-apocalyptic dictatorial, uh, under some dictatorial regime, several of them involving either like, you know, a plague that reordered society or, or a war that reordered society. Um, I'm trying to think of like similar ones set in the US and I, all I can think of is like 12 Monkeys. Sorry, is this just me going off on a on a tangent? No, I'm trying to think of I I think anything because I like post apocalyptic well, stuff. Are myself, you saying, Andrew, you, you're wondering if there's something specifically British? Yeah, about specifically that idea? British about it because those all those I named were British. The only thing I can think of in set in the U.S. is Twelve Monkeys. I can only thing I can think of is, is like post zombie stuff. Really, you know, I can't think of anything. Um, yeah, po- zombie apocalypse. Yeah, there's lots I can't of think zombie of anything stuff. What's the- off the top of my head? Sort What's of. the name of the one where the Nazis won World War Two? Oh, Man in the High Castle. Man in the High Castle. Yes, Man in the High Castle. Does that count? Yeah, yeah. Um, and and I think if that, if to the degree we can explain a particular British affection for it, uh, the the First and Second World War might um, yeah. speak a little bit to the idea of having reflected deeply on what it would mean for Britain for them um, to win. If yeah, yeah, for for something like that to happen. Um, one thing I did want to mention, uh, Dave, I don't know if you've been reading any of the year-end roundups of best ofs of this year, but um, most of my favorite publications cited The Last of Us as some of the best television of the year. Mm-hmm. And they all, down to the last one, specifically mentioned the Frank and Bill episode as the highlight of the series. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's just to call back to a previous panel where we talked about that and and I think some of us also felt that that was the highlight. So that was gratifying to see that that they had that success. 
I haven't actually watched it yet. I've been waiting for free time to binge it because I need all the emotional. Episode three, Andrea. I know, I know. I do know (laughs) what you're talking about because I I know the game. Um, Yeah, it's very good. But uh, yeah, I've been waiting because I need like the emotional energy to conserve my emotional energy to get through it because it's so (laughs) wrenching. Um, Yeah. So yeah, I'm looking forward to watching that. So well, as much as I'm looking forward to anything that is going to depress the shit out of me. Um, all right, cool. So why don't we get into some final thoughts? So Rory, final thoughts on watching bodies. If you like time travel and you don't like thinking too much about it. <laughs> um, We've done the thinking for you. <laughs> yeah. If you like that kind of thing, you can, th- you can think about this, but you can also let it kind of wash over you. And that's what I, what I, um, enjoyed about it and i think this is designed to be a more enjoyable entertaining program than some of the harder stuff like dark and for people that might be put off by it as i said we talked about how it teaches you to watch it stick with it um and you'll have a great time and i would love to see season two i don't know how they would do it but i would love to see it so stick with it and go for it is all i'd say or if you like thinking a lot about whether Hayden Harker was the grandfather or great grandfather <laughs> or great great grandfather. Exactly. Uh, Andrea, final thoughts. Yeah. Um, well, if you're like me into science fiction and also detective stories, this is this is the show for you. Um, it it hit every point I wanted it to. It it met every expectation I had for it. It was in every way possible, story-wise, character-wise, and also just, you know, having worked in television for years, how the look of it, the, the production design, um, the storytelling devices, uh, everything worked um, on a really high level for me. So, uh, yeah, I, I can't recommend it highly enough. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I found it really, really engrossing. I think on first watch, I thought it was, you know, really entertaining, but maybe, yeah, it didn't make as much sense as I wanted it to. I liked it a lot more second time around. Or, I mean, I don't. I, I thought it made. I, I thought a lot of my objections actually were addressed uh, in, in a way that I didn't really notice until the second mm. second viewing. Um, mm. So I have a pretty positive feeling about it now. I mean, uh, it's not um, groundbreaking particularly. I mean, if you've watched a lot of time travel stories, I think you've pretty much seen most of the stuff before, but it is really, you know, like I said, I watched the whole thing in one day and, you know, just couldn't, couldn't stop. So, I mean, if you're, if you're looking for something that's going to really grab your attention like that, I would definitely recommend it uh, on that, on that basis. Um, but so how about Aaron? Final thought on bodies. Yeah, I just think it's really enjoyable. And I think, uh, you know, this is a great example of where the gimmick, uh, which is time travel, and, you know, we actually don't see that much time travel. It's not like people are running around doing all this time traveling. Yeah. Um, it, it, we don't even see it at all in, until the end. It's just, it's implied that this is the mechanism by which the plot is unfolding. And at no point does it get in the way. And I think that's refreshing. We don't get so hung up on the gimmick yeah. that we forget to tell the story that the, the yeah. The gimmick is just, as I mentioned before, I think it's just whatever metaphor you want to use, the engine, the scaffolding, to facilitate what is a good detective yarn. It's a good detective yarn with sprinkles, as opposed to, <laughs> you know, something that's like a, a hardcore science fiction story with the yeah. sprinkles of detectives on top. And yeah. that's that's what I like about it is, is that balance, that it's, 
largely about normal detectives doing normal things in their timelines. It's refreshing to sort of see what's similar and what's different in their processes, especially if you kind of like geeking out on police procedurals a bit. And yeah, that, that spec fic element is just, is just sprinkles. And I love that. So yeah. if that sounds like it appeals, check it out. Yeah. And it definitely made me curious to see what else, you know, to see what comes next from Paul Tomlin, because, you know, he does, I thought the the characters and the mood and everything so well. And I'd be curious to see what he does with a non-time travel story, because, you know, this, the time travel stories are always going to have, you know, as, as Rory knows all too well, going to have some stuff that you're <laughs> yeah. never going to seem like it totally makes sense. So uh, I'd be curious to see, uh, see some other... Uh, other genre, oh, what, what he's uh, what he's capable of, um, but yeah, definitely recommend it. Super fun, uh, you know. So uh, yeah, everyone check it out. Um, all right, but why don't we wrap things up there? So we've been speaking with Aaron Lindsay, Andrea Kale, and Rory Carroll. So thanks everyone so much for joining us. Thanks, Dave. Thank you. Thank you. And that was our panel. So big thanks again to Aaron Lindsay, Andrea Kale, and Rory Carroll for joining us on the show. This episode of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy was made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoyed the show and want it to continue, please support us on Patreon over at patreon.com geeks, or via PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com crowdfunding. All right, so that was our show. So thanks everyone for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkirtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.